0: Welcome back to Southeast Asia Radio. Today, we'll ring in the Lunar New Year. Afterwards, we have more updates on Myanmar for you. We're also covering some political developments in Thailand and touching on chips manufacturing in the region. I'm Lauren Mai. Today is February 22nd, 2024. On today's interview...
1: In terms of Pablo, I think to some degree, he will keep following what Jokowi has set up. He's not a stupid man, okay? He's not dumb. I mean, he may be crazy, but he's not dumb. But Basically, he already knows that he has to succeed Jokowi, who is the one of the most popular and seems as a one of the most successful president. So he has a big show, show to, to feel, and he knows that a lot of people just don't like him or think that he's a crazy guy. So he has to beat the expectations.
0: Greg Poling and Alina Noor were joined by Johannes Suleiman to discuss the outcomes of the Indonesian elections. Before that, let's start with the headlines.
2: Hi Lauren, happy Thursday. Hi
0: Dafit. Oh, and happy belated Lunar New Year.
2: Is it belated now? I thought it lasted for 15 days. Does it? I know that the first five days are
0: very important, but.
2: Honestly, I'm really bad at this. I always just remember the festivals and the food part, but yes, we'll well. we'll just say (laughs) belated then. Yes. Looking forward to seeing what this new Lunar New Year brings.
0: Yes, yes, it is my year. Very excited as a year of the dragon, yes.
2: Well, people all across Southeast Asia and the world are ringing in the Year of the Dragon, not just you, with uh, several days of celebration, feasts, and festivals.
0: Lunar New Year is one of the most important holidays in Asia. Hundreds of millions of people travel during this time of year, and many regional economies see a boost from holiday spending.
2: People are celebrating in all sorts of different ways. In Vietnam, people are splurging on a rare breed of poultry raised southeast of Hanoi. They're called dragon chickens, and they go for about 450 each because, Lauren, have you seen the feet on these things?
0: They're huge. Red, scaly feet, the size of a beer can. Truly an evolutionary wonder.
2: Singapore is celebrating in a different way. Prime Minister Lee Shen-Lung urged young Singaporean couples to have babies during this auspicious year of the dragon.
0: Well, I guess that's one way to address concerns over record low birth rates and an aging population.
2: Let's start with our first headline. Myanmar's junta announced that mandatory military service will be enforced for all young people.
0: All men aged 18 to 35 and all women aged 18 to 27 must serve for two years. Specialists such as doctors and engineers under the age of 45 for men and under the age of 35 for women may also be assigned to serve for three years.
2: The announcement appears to confirm that the military has been stretched thin from fighting with ethnic armed groups, which began a large coordinated attack in late October.
0: Young people and parents in Myanmar are expressing fear, anxiety, and defiance over the announcement.
2: Some people are saying that they would either run away or join with revolution forces. Thousands are also seeking to go abroad to avoid conscription. More than 1,000 people were lined up at the Thai embassy in Yangon on Friday.
0: Certainly, this is a controversial initiative from the Myanmar military. We'll have to pay close attention to what happens next.
2: Let's move on to our next headline. Former Thai Prime Minister Thaksin Chinowatra has been granted parole after serving six months in detention.
0: That's right, Jaffet. However, Thaksin was never really held in prison. The entirety of the former prime minister's six-month detention was served in a Bangkok hospital upon his return to Thailand in August of last year, after over a decade in exile.
2: Mm-hmm, right. Taksin went into exile in 2008 after being convicted of abuses of power in relation to alleged human rights violations perpetrated during violent conflicts in the nation's largely Muslim provinces and the war on drugs.
0: For these abuses, Taksin was originally granted an eight-year prison sentence, which was reduced to one year by the king.
2: Thai inmates are eligible for parole only if they're over the age of 70, have a serious illness, or are disabled. At 74 years old and with ongoing health issues, Toxin is eligible for parole under the first two conditions.
0: And he could even be released as early as this weekend. On to our final headline, Vietnam is offering substantial incentives, such as tax breaks, to draw in foreign semiconductor companies.
2: The chip manufacturing industry in Vietnam has been booming recently, with companies such as NVIDIA and Samsung seeking to expand their business in the nation.
0: The industry is already slated to receive millions in funding from the United States through its Chips and Science Act, but Hanoi's National Plan for Chips will also include grants through a science fund and funding from private companies like FPT.
2: The plan also includes a goal to train 50,000 engineers for the industry by 2030.
0: Vietnam has been largely competing with Malaysia for semiconductor manufacturing investment, but it has so
2: far attracted dozens of companies in the field. Amid the U.S. and China's competition for tech supremacy, semiconductor companies have begun looking for alternative locations to bring their business to avoid fallout, which opens up opportunities for Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam.
0: U.S. Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment, Jose Fernandez, said that several more U.S. players would jump in if the country had enough renewable energy to meet their green goals.
2: Well, that's certainly a strong incentive for Vietnam to further develop its plans for renewable energy.
0: We love to see a push towards encompassing sustainability. We'll have to see if Vietnam's incentives are
2: successful in bringing in foreign companies. We will. And with that, those were our headlines.
0: Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Johannes Suleiman Stay tuned.
3: Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio, everybody. As always, I'm your host, Greg Poling, with the Center for Strategic International Studies, joined by Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Hey, Alina. Hey, Greg. And our special guest today is Johannes Suleiman. Johannes is a longtime friend and a lecturer at Universitat Henderal Akhmadyani. And we have a complicated set of time zones going today because I am recording from Canberra. Alina is on the West Coast in the U.S., and Johannes, of course, is in Indonesia. So I don't really know what time it is for any of us, but I appreciate both of them joining. The reason that we have Johannes on today is because just two days ago from the time we're recording, which is February 16th, Indonesians went to the polls in the largest single-day democratic exercise on Earth, And the apparent winner in a single round was defense minister and repeat presidential would-be Prabowo Subianto, who has finally succeeded in getting the top prize. Prabowo had to get 50% in order to avoid a runoff later this summer. And latest counts that I've seen, at least overnight here, was that he's around 56%, although that'll likely change, defeating the other contenders, Anis Baswedan, former governor of Jakarta. And Ganjar Pranowo, governor of Central Java. So, Johannes, how the heck did Prabowo manage to get this far above fifty percent in the closing days of of the race when I think everybody was kind of wondering if he was going to get stuck around forty eight, forty nine, fifty?
1: Thankfully, the number has been kind of steadily increasing. His poll number has been improving actually in the past couple two three months actually. If you talk to a lot of the stars, like in the Twitter and Saifu Mujani, the numbers are there, I mean, it has been increasing. So based on the trend, they'll say that it will hit 25%, so it's not really that surprising. And of course, the question is, like you like why? And some kind of blaming the government intervention, which is, I think, to some degree correct. I mean, the government, the Jokowi, basically just gave away a lot of subsidies, a lot of social assistance like rice and you know and cooking. I mean, cooking stuff and whatever. I mean, in fact, there are lots of complaints lately that it is almost impossible to find rice at stores because apparently all of them are gone. So, man, people say that look, that's because Jokowi distributing them all over the place, so there will be enough both for power. So, this kind of work, I guess. I mean, I'm not really sure like how, how do you be, how do you be so illegal that is, but I mean that the government can do anything. So that's one, one of the main reasons like, that the full power of state is behind uh, supporting Pablo. But at the same time, we cannot also neglect the fact that some of them, the other candidates also have their own missteps and also they're basically kind of flawed candidates. And so in, in the sense that it is a combination of both, both the push from the government and then also the fact that the other candidates are making mistakes.
4: So, Johannes, you know, I was going to ask, how does it feel to have President Prabowo Subianto as Indonesia's president? But I won't put you on the spot that way. You mentioned, you said government, but I think some government intervention. But I think primarily the talk has been about Jokowi himself being personally involved in the whole process, especially in the few weeks running up to February 14 itself. And there were some reports about bureaucrats particularly in central java i believe who were threatened cases against them and all this i suppose will come out later on and we'll hear more stories but anis he said that his campaign will respect whatever outcome happens but that his team will wait until the final results are out do you expect to see or hear of any controversies surrounding the final results i mean or is it a done deal with Prabowo being president?
1: In my opinion, it is a done deal. Are there any kind of cheating going on? Any manipulation? Yes, but I think by the end of today, the day, constitution, the constitution of Thought we have basically declared that there are some, you know, some, some problems, but it's not severe, systematic enough to change the, the election drastically and, and like what they usually been doing. So they will just let the record stand. And usually the quick counts are very, very reliable here in Indonesia. So I don't think that they will be able to overthrow the election. And besides, if you look at the numbers, the numbers is different, pretty huge. I mean, Anis only got like around 35% of the vote, while Danja got like 15 and Pabo got the rest, like, around fifty-five. So it is very difficult to overturn the victory. Although you can make an argument like, hey, but we won the second round, right? The problem is with the second round is there is no guarantee that this will not repeat again. Right? Like will win again, and then and Anis will be, of course, the one that's going to the runoff. We all, you know we again like, lose and complaints. So. But of course, to be, yeah. it also
3: up the end. it's hard to give too much credence to reports about voting irregularities, which there I'm sure were when the winning candidate wins by 30 points. So the margin of victory, I think, would seem to preclude the idea of any real challenges to the outcomes. So let's get back to how Propolo managed to win an election by 30 points. This is a, a retired general in his mid-70s. Son-in-law of former dictator Suharto, credibly accused of human rights violations that have dogged him for years, failed to secure the presidency twice already, defense minister, and yet most voters seem to embrace this new idea of Prabowo as the cuddly grandfather figure. I mean, this is a remarkable transformation of what's got to be one of the most well-known public figures in Indonesia. How did he pull this off? Honestly, it's kind of times worthy because if, especially if you all know,
1: him, like you said, I and mean, you know his background, and then suddenly he came out as this great anime figure, like, or doing all the funny stuff, like, like this funny grandma, I mean, it was crazy, it was. But generation lied it, I mean, especially if you have a bunch, maybe like around 50% of the, of the voters, young voters, basically... Never felt what life was under Suharto's era, where you cannot say anything, where if you say something wrong, then off you go to the jail <laughs> and get beaten by the soldiers. And I mean, for those people, I mean, this is this is kind of an ancient history. I mean, I even have some friends who typically said that, look, Johanna, I mean, you shouldn't draw on the past. It's already past. It's like years already. I mean, and probably change or. You know, I mean, or like nobody cares anymore about Suharto. So what they really want is like, who they think can vote the best out of three candidates. And you know, so basically that's how he did the image because through the you know for the forgetfulness of the youth because few you people really want to talk about what happened during the Suharto era and also the fact that they never felt or never hear all the oppression by on the I mean, and of course, I mean. There are also some nostalgia, especially by some older voters to Prabowo, like, you know what I mean? At least under Suharto, life was stable, life was, you know, was easy. So maybe Pablo can bring back his view of good old times. So, I mean, so that kind of combination between the old generation and the young generation and one, you get those voters. But honestly, in my opinion, the most significant factor is the fact that Jokowi supported him. And we are talking here about the president whose popularity was so high that the only guy who can beat him was Kim Jong-un, okay? I mean, Kim Jong-un got, like, what, 170% of popular, I mean, approval rating, and Jokowi is slightly behind at 80% approval rating. So this is a very popular president, and then he's kind of the one that, I think, personally, I think is probably the most successful president in the and economy growth, and he gave his blessing to Pablo, and then people just go to
4: him. I mean, you know, Johannes, you say he's cringy. Might be a generational thing as you alluded. He's quite a good dancer, I have to say. He's quite a cute, cuddly grandfather I mean,
1: with like a <laughs> and, you know,
4: and, you know. and dancing. I
1: mean,
3: you just like cringy for me. Alina, you were just married. If your husband to be had come out and danced the way that Proboo dances at his rallies, I don't think you would be saying what a good dancer. <laughs>
4: My husband is also not a 70-plus-year-old grandfather. So for his age, I think he dances really well, Prabowo. (laughs) Anyway, is this really about Prabowo or is it about Jokowi, this vote in favor of Prabowo? One, right? And two, if it is about Prabowo, does modern-day Indonesia have to fear a Prabowo presidency in the way that... Indonesia say, you know, 30 years ago might have had Prabowo run at that time.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I, mean, I have to say the first, it is, so I guess it is Prabowo and then I mean, in Prabowo case, he managed to to change his reputation from this serious, like crazy general into this laughable, huggable grandpa, I mean, the one who, like you said, I mean, really, really good in dancing. But if you look at the, at the public opinion polls, I mean, until actually October last year, his number is actually not that good. He's possibly at 20% of the vote. He's like way behind Ganjar Anowo, or the governor of mm-hmm. Central Java, and slightly above Anis Baswedan. And at that time, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but last year, I said that, look, I got informed by yeah, several authorities that some of the that Anowo is going to improve, that he may be the frontrunner, and I was basically laughed out of the room, because this sister, you know, you are crazy. And then, of course, I mean, at that time, there were already rumors among several people who knows that Jokowi was ready to, free, to shift his boats from his support from Ganda to, to Pablo, And that's what happened. I mean, especially after Ganda basically pissed off Jokowi in, in April when he rejected U-20 years from I mean, a woke Cup, in Indonesia, I mean, here people have this crazy obsession with soccer. With soccer. I don't know whether you want to call it football or soccer. I mean, I don't care. It. It's
3: soccer. American podcast, can call it soccer.
1: I will only really watch some football. So. And, and, and for those the supporters out there, fuck you. <laughs> you can scratch it. I'm a high three. So at that time, Ganja uh, vote was, uh, well, Ganja, the numbers was declining. I mean, although not really that high. But what really changed the number is after Jokowi showed his basically explicit support to Pablo's. And then especially after Yibrand was nominated as was running mate, then in October, the number just greatly. I mean, although, of course, I mean, in June, July, you already saw the number, the number keep declining, Pablo's number keep increasing. But in October, basically, after the nomination of Gibran and his running mate, the Pablo's number just shot off. Just shot off, and the numbers keep declining. And that's what I mean, And at the same time, Anis at that time also in his candidacy as the opposition of Jokowi. Then his numbers just start to shut off, and the numbers keeps going down. And until now, we see Pablo at the 55%, Gandia at just 15%, and Anis at 25%. Mm.
3: Johannes, I want to get your read on the health of Indonesian democracy amid this election because there's – it seems like always alarm bells ringing for 10 years of Jokowi, you know, and I won't deny that there's been worrying signs of democratic backsliding or the weakening of institutions like the KPK and others over the course of the Jokowi presidency and, of course – Everybody had questions about how Gibran became – Jacoys' eldest son became the running mate of provoo when he's not at the legal limit and was approved by Jacobi's brother-in-law who was the chief justice of the Supreme Court. None of that looks great. But at the same time, the idea of a popular incumbent president more or less endorsing a successor is normal – in almost every other democracy on earth. Indonesia is somewhat unique in the idea that this was scandalous, that Jokowi would publicly endorse a successor. That's what happens in most democracies. And the voters don't seem to care. At every point in this election, I kept hearing predictions, oh, at this point, Prabowo has gone too far, Jokowi's gone too far, there's gonna be a backlash. And it seemed to be quite the opposite. People liked Jokowi, and therefore they liked Jokowi's more or less anointed successor. Is that really that worrying?
1: How many minutes do we have? Because I think that I still require like two hours talk, but (laughs) okay, it is kind of complicated. And at the same time, it's kind of simple because I got several kind of answers here, but here's what I'm going to throw first. The fact that what Jokowi did was not that controversial among the population because, I mean, honestly, I don't like all the new literatures about Indonesian democratic, I mean authoritarian turn, Indonesian democratic, I mean, they make points. I think that I agree that Jokowi, in most cases, as you said, that has gone too far. But at the same time, Jokowi was, is using the tools that was there for him to use. Like the IT law, the information technology law, that basically kind of shut down the discussion and also kind of shut down, the I mean, like the criminalized speech, basically, It was approved during Yudhoyono era, back in 2012, and at that time people already warned the president that, look, this is going to backfire, this is going to be something that's going to destroy democracy, but Yudhoyono allowed it. And if you look at dynasty politics in Indonesia, ever since the Reformation, you already got lots of local leaders, provincial governors, mayors, regents, they basically, have their family succeeding them, like the wife and the children, the nephew, the uncle, the cousin, second cousin, remove five fifth cousin, whatever. I mean, politics is always like a family business for all those people, and so people look at them and say, you know, I mean, we already got all those people doing the family politics, including all the crazy ones. Now we got a, a kind of better president, and why why shouldn't we add that? He wants his son to succeed him. So this kind of the thing that. But for, for some voters, I guess it's kind of a hypocrisy, like, well, how come those, you don't care if those people are doing the thing, but you care when the president is doing it? I mean, of course, you can make an argument, that look, it is different, okay, this is the president, he, I mean, he's leading the army, he's leading the police force, I and mean, he got all the states too. But then look at the local government and look at the local government and say, hey, I mean, what's the difference? The of control can also use the police and, the, and sometimes the military to do what they want. So it is the kind of damages, I mean, I think, or kind of the problems that have been there even since the start of, of the Reformation. And Joe was simply the one who's doing it, who's using it. Why not do you do, you know? Because when you do, you know, like the office in 2014, he was so unpopular. Nobody wants to be associated with him. Even in 2016, when his son, Remember, we are talking here about you. Do you know who was reelected back in 2009 with more than 60% of the votes? The number that either Joe Biden or Trump was salivated. <laughs> I mean, oh my God, 60% of the United States are voting me. I mean, I'd like to create this mistake, whatever. I mean, Trump will be the one that, but you do not get the number 60% of the votes. And then, by twenty fourteen, I mean, his number is so low that the next presidential candidate, Jokowi and Prabowo, who succeed in him, just don't know to get associated with him. They kind of run kind of, I mean, away like hell on him because you know, he's so unpopular. So basically, that's the kind of the thing that Jokowi is simply abusing his popularity. I mean. So yeah, on one hand, is that a good thing that happened in democracy? I agree it's not. But on the other hand, he's just using... All the tools have already been there. People are already kind of fine to have I mean your art succeeding you. Especially if you are a successful
4: one. I think on the one hand, like there's been so much hand-wringing about democratic backsliding, like you said, Greg, but really dynastic politics and all the shenanigans that go along with that are actually quite prevalent in many systems around the world. And I think Indonesia is no exception. But Johannes, what can we expect from a Prabowo presidency? I mean, is it just going to be Jokowi 2.0? Prabowo is a very different personality, right? He's still very mercurial. We saw that in debates. Flashes of his temper came about. What should we expect?
1: You can expect Trump versus Indonesian version of Trump. Okay, now... <laughs> in, in style or in substance?
4: Uh, in style or in substance?
1: Oh. Well, I mean I don't I don't I don't know. I saw Tom dancing and I think yes he's worse than you know than Pabo. I think he's worse than Pablo. <laughs> but although I don't know whether I should say this openly, I mean you <laughs> guys will revoke my visa. <laughs> so that will be a problem. But in terms of Pablo, I think to some degree if he will keep following what Jokowi has set up. He's not a stupid man, okay? He's not dumb. I mean, he may be crazy, but he's not dumb. But basically, he already knows that he has to succeed Jokowi, who is the one of the most popular and seen as a one of the most successful president. So he has a big show, show to to feel, and he knows that a lot of people just doesn't like him, or think that he's a crazy guy. So he has to beat the expectation. That's what I gather from talking to some people who I believe is quite close to him. Like this is kind of like what worrying him now, like whether he can deep expectations of course i might be wrong okay i mean sometimes you also got some sources and that kind of hurt your model but that's one of the main reasons why i don't think we will have much hate in terms of economic policy compared to jokowi of course whether he's going to close to be going close to china i don't think so i mean every single indonesian president actually even including jokowi try to put both united states and china at arm's length i mean because the indonesian president they don't want to become overly dependent on the United States or China. That's the fact. And Pablo on the military has the same mindset. He likes United States, but he doesn't want to be uh, seen as overly dependent on the United States because that will hurt his nationalistic credential. And same thing with China. So in terms of economic policies, I think he will continue geopolitical policies. And of course, there are some, you know, some variants, some changes a bit, but economically wise, it won't be that different. Foreign policy wise though, I don't think he's going to be as crazy as Trump in the sense like he's going to insult ASEAN leaders or NATO leaders and I mean or kind of saying that, oh you know, Joe Biden, you are I mean some of a bit like what like happened in, in the Philippines. I mean, he's not going to pull that. I mean. Duterte is in his own category of crazy guy. I mean. our it's not it's not that crazy. I mean, he's crazy but not that insane. But what happened is that if you as a leader is hurting is he, his image. Is by him as hurting his image, or doing something that can be uh, seen as uh, threatening Indonesia, then he will reply, uh, and sometimes maybe over the top. So that's where he will be similar to Trump. If you have a leader that's praising him, oh my God, Prabowo is probably like the best president ever in Indonesia. He will be your best friend. And of course, if you also dangle that, oh, you know, we also want to send you lots of foreign aids or whatever, I mean, I mean, yeah, that will be the best way for you to get into his good side. I mean, yesterday I was interviewed by the Chinese journalist. They asked me the same question, like, right? what can they expect to see in Joko in or whether he will be anti-China because of his anti-China record, and remember a lot of Indonesians believe that this was possible for 1998 riots that, you know, that killed a lot of Chinese. I told them that, look, I don't think he's going to be anti-Chinese, I don't think he's going to I mean, to actively against China, I don't think so. He's too smart to do that. But if China caused problems in South China Sea or Indonesia, you can prepare for more over-the-top response compared to Djokovic. In Djokovic period, he basically Put everything, sort everything under the ground because he doesn't want to hurt Indonesia-Chinese economic relations. But in Pablo, then I think that's where he will be like unpredictable. I'm not sure whether he can control it. I think he can. I think, they will, but it will be like much higher con- escalation in terms of, like how he responds to what he sees as, I mean, the China encroachment on Indonesian territory. So basically, that's I think is the difference. So. As long as you are talking his ego, basically, as long as you are doing playing nice with him, then yeah, he will be your best grandpa. He will be your best, best friend, best grandpa, your, your grandpa, that you will always want and hug your entire life. But once you cross him, then you got time.
3: <laughs> All right. Well, Johannes... Thank you so much for, I think I can easily say, the most entertaining analysis I've heard since the election a couple days ago. That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining us, Alina. Thanks for staying up a little late on the West Coast to do this. And thanks all of you for listening. Alina and I will be back in a couple weeks with the next episode of Southeast Asia Radio.
2: Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. As always, write us with any feedback at searadio at csis.org. We'll be sure to get back to you.
0: Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us.
2: Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Angus Lamb, Corey Donnelly, and Tappy Lung. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Japhet Gitson,
0: And I'm Lauren Mai.
2: And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.